dog days of summer, aren't we, Liam? How are you, bud? I'm very sleepy. I've been working every single day for the past three weeks. I had one day off in the last three weeks because I'm saving up money for this move so we don't hit, like, Arizona and then not have enough money for gas. I was just expecting, like, a good or pretty good, because we have a guest that I'd like to introduce very quickly <laughs> so he can join in the conversation. Absolutely. Guest, take it away. Uh, hello there. It's me, Seth Finkelstein, star of Stage and Screen, and I gotta say, boys, I was feeling pretty good today. And then it became around 3 o'clock, and I realized it's a dog day afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Then that, that Pacino was there, and he yeah. was all, You know, living in the city, I know, Liam, you'll miss it. Just constant sort of grime and mm-hmm. grit. You know, uh, they say that, like, 70s New York is dead, but it's not dead at all. Just wait till the summer, and then it's, like, 70s New York everywhere. Yeah. Every summer is the summer of Sam. Is that the right one I'm thinking of? Yeah, I mean, yeah. David Berkowitz, right? Sure. He murdered people. He sure did. Don't look at me accusingly. Uh, Oh, I just got an email from Spike Lee. Uh, Liam, he's asking you to never talk about the Summer of Sam again. That's like the third thing Spike Lee has told me not to talk about. (laughs) I only know Spike Lee directed a movie called Summer of Sam about those murders because there's a poster hanging up next to where I take naps in the Tish basement. (laughs) This is Media Majors. It's a podcast about major media. Sometimes when it's too hot outside, the openings get a little loopy. Every week, my beautiful co-host, Tom Lockney, and I, Liam Sr., talk about stories from our preferred medium. I like movies and television. And I like video games and the internet culture. And Seth, what are you into? What are you nasty for? I'm a bit of a Wednesday warrior. I love those comic books, (laughs) graphic novels. Uh, The old Pulp Fictions. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Tights, uh, Vertigo Comics. Image uh, Comics. Image. I'm, I'm a young blood spawn. <laughs> Alan Moore. Frank Miller. Great, great. Jim Lee. Yep. Jeff Johns. But in seriousness, uh, I, I'm a big fan of comic books. I think that they are a uh, uh, one of America's great like culture contributions to sort of the... the culture of the world i agree um and i think that they are not respected in the way they uh should be according to you if i remember correctly our theme this week is famous feuds let's just say feuds because mine is again really average tangential (laughs) and uh tom i believe you're gonna go first this week i absolutely am chapter one (laughs) loyalty 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 damn Brand loyalty. The tendency of some consumers to continue buying the same brand of goods rather than competing brands. Businesses exploit this concept to gain an edge in the toxically competitive capitalist market. For basically as long as capitalism has existed in the U.S., the consumers who shaped and were shaped by brand loyalty were all adults. Children were and still often are not consumers. They are merely groomed to become them. There are, of course, quasi-exceptions. Children do exercise some control over the success of children's brands, such as toys or cereal. Or the lucrative toy cereal. (laughs) This, however, requires them to convince their parents to sway the market by proxy, as their guardians are still 
the holders of capital. Despite adults' participation in the children's brand market, it remains just that, a children's brand market. There's a distinction of interest, and in the few cases of crossover, e.g. Lego sets, broad age appeal is niche enough that children and adults essentially have separate spheres of economic influence. I can, however, think of one particular medium that appeals to all ages. In fact, I talk about it on this podcast like a whole bunch. Chapter 2. I got a bone to pick! It's another Kendrick one! Look at me go! The mix of kids and adults playing video games results in profoundly intense brand loyalties. First of all, many families can often only afford one console every couple of years, especially back in like the 80s and 90s when video games were really like the home console market just began. Mm-hmm. This isn't it's not like it's not like beef jerky or something where you're getting it every week. You get one console and by god, you're going to fucking love it. You're going to make yourself love it. People are threatened by the idea that another console might be better than theirs and that they might have made the wrong purchasing decision. Be that uh, over a console's performance, ability to perform, over the games on that console, what have you. In the early days before the internet, much of the discourse surrounding games and my console is much bigger than yours is exchanged between kids at the playground or at the arcade. Well, if you're a kid in 1986. Exactly. Well, that's that's when this really starts. We, we have all seen the hit documentary Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah. Ugh. One of the all-time great documentaries. Yeah. Errol Morris's best. Yeah. I mean, like, or, or another favorite documentary of mine, Terminator 2, where John Connor goes to the arcade with his butt. Mm-hmm. Or uh, Werner Herzog's Tron. <laughs> I mean, he did the original and sort of the, the sequel. Yeah. Really deviated from his vision by... I wanted there to be more machines. And I they mean, were, like, more lights. Like... Tron is sort of what his aesthetic like yeah. if he could get transported into a computer like <laughs> that would be perfect all this solidifies playground culture you know competitiveness and and defensiveness over your possessions into the gaming discourse these kids are the people writing into the first gaming magazines asking questions pushing editors to angle pieces and take certain takes in particular directions to generate successful print publications the playground mentality bleeds into gaming's big publications, which then feed it back out into its child and adult readers, and so the trajectory of game discourse heads down this hyper-competitive path. I should say this is definitely not like, oh man, it's like the fucking kids' fault, because there are obviously a lot of cultural influences that cause them to behave and think in ways that they do in the in that sort of competitive way. And so begin the console wars. One of gaming's most Shoes aside. We see this manifest in several ways. Sega attempts to exploit the wars with their aggressive Genesis does what Nintendo don't ad campaign. Fucking love it. Breaking, breaking. Mario cheats on Peach. You know, companies sensationalize the power of their console's performance, and publications run pieces like who, quote-unquote, won E3. I would love it if they, like, tried to muckrake each other's mascots and stuff. Well, have you ever seen the old uh, Crash Bandicoot commercial? Yeah. 
where it was a man in a crash costume with a megaphone, and he stood outside, quote-unquote, Nintendo headquarters, and just yelled, like, Get out of here, Mario! Like, let's see what you got! That's amazing! Dress out here, Mario! We're gonna fucking throw it down, you and me! We're gonna squash yeah. this beef right here! Sonic says he's the fastest hedgehog, but does he tell you about the growth hormones he's been taking? There's a lot of questions I have about Mario and Sonic and everyone's physiology that are not answered by any of them. How are they so, able to play all these Olympic games? I mean, that's true. This vicious cycle intensifies with the creation of internet message boards and comment sections. Uh, holy, hey guys, did you know <laughs> that people in the comment sections get a little intense from time to time? Especially about really stupid things like, is the Xbox better than the PlayStation? Or who who wrote the first comment? Or who framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, it was, it was Judge Lloyd. Doom. Yeah, it was, it was Judge, Judge Doom. Doom. They answered that question pretty succinctly in the movie. <laughs> of course, corporations love this. It means that they can spoon feed fans any small piece of information and just have them leap for it like starving hounds. These arguments just serve to reinforce the brand loyalty. And it seems as though the wars will never end. Until chapter 3. This chapter is just called Disaster Strikes because video games are the fucking worst. So recently, the console wars have died down. And there's a couple of reasons why. First thing is that the last generation of consoles completely broke down the five-year cycle of console releases. Prior to the PS3, 360, Wii, new consoles would release every five years or so, all at about the same time. Hardware developers would even announce consoles at the same time uh, as each other to stoke the fires of competition amongst their fans. But, you know, the, the PS3 and the 360 lasted for a fucking decade. I, I distinctly remember journalists and cultural critics being like man this this generation has gone on for a super long time and nobody knows how anything's going to react to it also the wii u disrupts the cycle of competition by releasing in 2012 so now you have nintendo doing its own thing and again no one knew how to react how can we get invested in this console if it's not competing with something this uh, in tandem with Nintendo's fucking god-awful marketing and branding of the Wii U results in poor sales for that console. It was a fucking... It was a really good console, was, and they had good games very for good. it. And I it was had like, a great time There it is! It. It's the Wii U! Like, the sequel to the Wii! <laughs> they could have called it the Wii 2. The sequel to the Wii. Womp womp. Also, Gamergate happens. <laughs> uh, Tom, uh... uh I, you're going to need to give a long history on that right now, because I know that's your favorite thing to do. I would really rather not. I would listen to, like, a hundred hours of inane video game podcasts about is PS3 better than the Xbox in exchange for completely unwriting Gamergate from history. It's like the, it's like the single most devastating cultural event in video game history. So I mean, you can directly trace like the rise of the alt-right kind of to to gamergate obviously the conversations that gamergate is known for had always been happening but they hadn't been the like fucking all-consuming black hole that they were after gamergate and continue to be to this day 
All these absurdly popular figures either got their start in Gamergate or have piggybacked off of the movement into lucrative careers harassing minorities in video games. So basically, these people continue to anchor the discourse in harassment and necessitate a lot of the social justice pushback that dominates video game discourse to this day. So people are now not really that worried about like, hey, do you think the Xbox One's got more teraflops than the PS4? Now they're engaged in social discourse, and people are still, you know, interested from a consumer standpoint of, like, am I getting my money's worth out of this console? But those conversations totally get drowned out by the screaming voices of prejudice. And also, what I believe will be the final nail in the coffin, companies are rethinking their approach to console retail. In addition, uh, in order to combat inflating console lifespans, companies like Microsoft and Sony are opting for iterative launches with Microsoft's Xbox One X and Sony's PS4 Pro, which, uh, you know, rather than in being entirely new consoles, they're simply improvements upon existing designs with tweaks and upgrades to the hardware. So, you know, the console wars are dying they're they're real they're on their last legs and this is reflected in major gaming publications i i i don't think i saw a single who won the e3 piece this year on one of the giant bomb e3 live streams jeff gersman explicitly said that he was like i don't give a fuck who won it's stupid and we're done with that the the big joke i saw around was like like uh whoever the guy from xbox is and he's like this is the most powerful console of all time so many teraflops, 4K, and then like a bunch of people looking bored. And then Nintendo, you throw the hat, you are Mario, and you throw the hat at the frog, and you are the frog. Yep. And people like exploding and cheering. And then Reggie eats a car. Yeah. And fucking Shigeru Miyamoto walks out with a gun. Like it was yeah. awesome. <laughs> and the, the Ubisoft man cries because he's been dreaming about this since he was a child. Yeah. Like, those are the stories that are, like, interesting. Yeah. And as close, like, we're at the point where, like, you can't show me what 4K graphics look like on your YouTube stream, yeah. so I don't give a shit. Eat a car, Xbox guy. Yeah. Show me what you're made of. They brought of. the car out. Why didn't he eat it? <laughs> That's what I want to know. And additionally, new websites have sprung up in between console releases, sites like Waypoint that have no interest in writing pieces like who won a console war and so we stand i believe at the end of one of gaming's greatest feuds the console wars and that is my story for this week can i ask a, a follow-up question absolutely that uh uh, uh breaking news ddddddd and by breaking news i mean like been discussing for the past week uh, um, a man I don't watch named Video Game Donkey, mm. who I I believe is a basketball playing donkey, um, <laughs> released a video talking about like how game reviewers are like in like insincere and how big publications like you sort of can't trust them and YouTube people are the way to go because you know their opinions. Um, how do you do? You have any any hot takes on that? Oh God, I've got so many hot takes on that. So. Well, first of all, to address the final point, hey, like there is even less reason to trust a YouTuber because these companies pay for their trips and fly them out and pay them to talk about their games. Get, YouTubers are way more comprom are, are are way more likely to be compromised than games journalists. 
there's less regulation for a YouTuber than there is with a journalist. It's it's a lot harder to attack like the quote unquote credibility of a YouTuber because it's like they're just a fucking YouTuber. And that's and that's not to say that there aren't YouTubers that I don't like or respect. My whole thing is sometimes I just want to read a paragraph that's like the jumping was bad and not watch a 10 minute video where there's like bad goofs in them. Yeah. YouTubers aren't very funny, and most of them are, like, racists, so, like... You'd think it would work, having non-funny people be racist all the time. I know, but... it's weird. I actually, re I do like Dunky. I think that he is mostly a funny guy. Well, yeah, he's a basketball playing Dunky. Yeah, he's What's a... not to like. But I think... He ate too I many do spicy think peppers. <laughs> that that video was poorly constructed misrepresented a lot of things made some bad points and outdated points frankly so that's my that's my hot take on on donkey's bad video <laughs> <laughs> all right Seth. chapter one forest lawn memorial park los angeles california sits a grave in the shape of an open book it reads robert kane aka bob kane October 24th, 1915, to November 3rd, 1998. God bestowed a dream upon Bob Kane. Blessed with divine inspiration and a rich imagination, Bob created a legacy known as Batman. Introduced in a May 1939 comic book, Batman grew from a tiny acorn into an American icon. <laughs> That's not a, work. quote, hand of God creation. <laughs> Batman and his world personify the eternal struggle of good versus evil, with God's <laughs> laws prevailing in the end. Bob Kane, Bruce Wayne, Batman, they are one and the same. Bob infused his dual identity character with his own attributes goodness, kindness, compassion, sensitivity, generosity, intelligence, integrity, courage, purity of spirit, a love of all mankind. Batman is known as the Dark Knight, but through his deeds, he walks in the light of a higher power, as did his creator, Bob Kane. Beloved husband, father, grandfather, in loving memory. Part 2. In 1938, one of the most important pieces of literature in the 20th century was published. Come fight me if you think otherwise. <laughs> is it Detective Comics number one? It is Action Comics number one. Ah, I was close. Featuring the first appearance of Superman Do -do -do -do. by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, published by National Comics. In instant success, Superman opens the door to the superhero as we know it. It's clear that there is a market for these costume heroes, and National puts out the call for more characters. And so, Bob Kane is struck with a spectacular idea. And this is like a period of time, I feel like, in all media, where the stories don't leap as to, like, how was Bob Kane in the room? Like, I feel <laughs> like I've read so many, like, film stories or, like, early TV stories where there's just a guy sitting there, and he... And he's just, like... And he's like, cheers. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a quote from a man, a writer, named Bill Finger. Kane goes to Finger 
end. This is a quote from uh, Bill Finger. <laughs> and is smacked away. No fingering today, sir. Uh, okay. You, there's, there's your one. That's your one. <laughs> quote, Kane had an idea for a character called Batman, and he'd like me to see the drawings. A character who looked very much like Superman, with kind of reddish tights, I believe, with boots, no gloves, no gauntlets, and a small domino mask swinging on a rope. He had two stiff wings that were sticking out, looking like bat wings. And under it was a big sign, Batman. You know, Batman. <laughs> the one we know and love today. The one with the red tights. And the boots and the cardboard stiff wings. Yeah. Bat- we all know him and love him. Alfred, fetch me my red tights and <laughs> yeah. boots. The famous line. So he takes this monstrosity to Bill Finger and Bill Finger says, let's get rid of these wings. Let's make the costume black and bluish. Let's, uh, you know, put gloves on him. Let's let's give him a cowl. Let's, uh, you know, give him a friendly police commissioner friend. You know, make him make him look a little bit like a bat instead of like one of those clown shoes from Elizabethtown. Um, basically, like everything about Batman as we know it, like all the, the sort of cornerstone ideas is Bill Finger. Bob Kane just comes up with the name. What Bob Kane has is uh, what I would like to call the hustle. <laughs> <laughs> and what does Bill Finger have in this Part case? three. Bob Kane takes the sketch to National and sells it and stipulates in his contract when he sells this, he goes alone, that he is the sole creator and he is the only creator to get credit on the comics themselves. You open up, you know, Detective Comics 27, mm -hmm. and it, there's a signature Bob Kane and no other markings. Says finger and that who? is for get out that of is here. for years and years and years and years. And he sort of makes a gentleman's agreement with Bill Finger of like, I'll do the drawing, and you can make up everything about it, and I'll give you some of the profit. Batman makes his first appearance in Detective Comics 27. Uh, the comic that uh, National Comics would later take their new name. So all this year, you've been all these years, you've been reading Detective Comics comics. Yeah, it's oh, I never put that together because I'm an idiot. It's a it's a nightmare, and in every single one of the films, it makes me want to tear off my skin. Yeah. Oh wow. And Bill Finger is sort of this ghostly character, not <laughs> not real, you know, not spooky, but he is ghostwriting all of this stuff. He what is. What if we gave him less red ties? Yes. Yeah. Bob Kane very quickly leaves, like, stops drawing it entirely. Bill Finger creates the Joker. Uh, he creates Robin. He creates Catwoman. He creates. He uh, there's a story. He rode around the city on a bus with a notebook that he called the Gimmick Book, hmm. and he would just like. Oh, we're at a stoplight. Uh, a supervillain who uh, his gimmick is signals. He's signal man. Yeah. Look, gotcha. there's you know a joke book, the Joker. You know. Look at that uh, hot dog vendor, condiment king. <laughs> Somebody's reading a flip calendar. Oh, it's, it's the calendar man. man. Like he is, uh, you know, the epitome of sort of the like. I just gotta make something today, and it ends up being incredible. So part four. In the 1960s, uh, comic book culture begins to bloom into uh, a very nascent version of what we understand it now. This is when the first, you know, the kids who were reading Golden Age comics in the 30s and 40s are now adults, 
and are making comic cons and they're nostalgic for comics as a new generation reads the new Silver Age comics and there starts to become a fandom and people start asking well who wrote these Batman comics and they found out it's this guy Bill Finger well who is this Bill Finger and people start to lobby they start to push DC to acknowledge Bill Finger's contribution and this is where Bob Kane the the hustler you know master of the contract uh namer of Batman becomes the Bob Kane we see on the gravestone he's he's always been an asshole uh early like in in their careers Jerry Siegel tries to recruit Kane into a lawsuit against National for a higher page rate Mm because you know Siegel created Superman and that is a whole other kind of a story yeah but Bob Kane goes behind Siegel's back to the uh what do you call it leader of national and says hey they're trying to sue you like he tattles on them my god and negotiates a contract that says in perpetu in perpetuity, perpetuity i will be the only one he negotiates for a higher page rate and in perpetuity i will always be known as the creator of batman Jesus sounds Christ. like he's really giving bill the finger all right you're on thin ice now tom and <laughs> edit point <laughs> In response to this re-emerging of Bill Finger, Bob Kane pens a public letter that essentially says, I made Batman, me and me alone, no one else, I'm a genius, Bill is lying, like, I am, I am the, the master behind Batman. I am and, the man behind the cowl behind the cowl. Yeah, and Bob Kane has this contract that gives him leverage at DC, and his name's on the comics. The signature is on Detective Comic 27. That's right. Yeah. Like, so his story takes hold. And DC, like, you know, this is the struggle creators always have. Like, the corporation's not going to go to bat to pay someone else royalties on this thing. This fight goes on today, even, you know, as these characters become transmedia properties. Um, Like, uh, Bob sort of becomes a sort of Stan Lee character as the 60s show comes out. He's sort of doing the circuit of, you know, it's me, Bob Kane, oh creator of Batman, and you'd better watch Batman on ABC. Or I'll yell at you. Yeah. And uh, Bill Finger actually writes an episode, but he sort of becomes a, a writer for hire. He writes, you know, some stories for DC, some, you know, shitty crime stories. But he sort of disappears and dies in 1974. Oh. I wish I don't have his gravestone, so I can't <laughs> tell you. That's because I have it. Part 5. In September 2015, a deal was worked out for the first time that Bill Finger would receive a created by credit on a piece of Batman media. The media was unfortunately Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. I fucking knew it. Oh, Christ. I remember seeing that in the title, too, and being like... Good. You did it, Bill Finger. Yeah. His, you finally did it. On every piece of Batman media from now on, it will now say created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Thanks to the tireless efforts of a writer named Mark Tyler Nobleman and artist Ty Templeton, uh, they wrote a children's book called Bill the Boy Wonder that sort of told the story. And there's a documentary on Hulu sort of about his story of how he became a Bill Finger evangelist. Bill Finger is better known now than he was when his work was being created. Um, as for Kane, he continued to be a showboat who lied about his work, and he allowed Bill to die penniless and alone. Oh, man. He only acknowledged Bill's contributions in 1989, long after Bill's death and any possibility of seeing him in court. Fifteen years later. What a schmuck. Um, the fight for creator's rights in comics is long and in many ways ongoing. 
there are so many Bill Fingers who just disappeared because they didn't know their worth. You know, they didn't fight for themselves. Um, you know, Jack Kirby is famously like more of a creator of the Marvel Universe than Stan Lee, but Stan Lee is sort of the guy. Yeah. Um, my favorite story is uh, Galactus, the planet eater. Stan Lee went to Jack Kirby and said, uh, I want the Fantastic Four to fight God. And that's all he, that's all he gave him. Mm-hmm. And Jack Kirby comes back with this drawing of Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Mm-hmm. Did um, Lee ever screw over Ditka? Oh, he screwed over everyone. Oh, like that is an it. But Ditko is a fucking nightmare. Oh, is he? Um, he is an ob- he is more of an objectivist than Paul Ryan. Oh God! He, ri- he is still writing. Ditko is still alive today and writing and drawing his famous character, Mister A. Oh no! Who believes A is A? It is. It, it, you know the question? Yeah. The yeah. the faceless man. That was a Steve Ditko creation, mm-hmm. and it was a uh, you know. The qu- the answer to the question was uh, the poor people should die. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's important to fight for recognition and for what you believe in because that's what Batman would want. The end. That was fantastic. Fucking amazing. And go fuck yourself, Bob Kane. Yeah, seriously, Bob Kane. I've got a feud, but before we listen to it, we're going to listen to a quick ad from another show on the Major Casts Network. Do you find yourself unable to watch television? Who has the time? Well, luckily, we do. I'm Liam Sr. I'm Josh Phillips. We host a podcast where we watch old canceled TV for, for you. you. Musty TV, every Thursday on the Major Cast Network. My father says we're crazy. My mother won't talk to me anymore. All right, guys. Hey, I don't... Sorry, my... Pants feel the, oh my god all my money disappeared <laughs> oh my i think i i have a a, a mouse in this apartment that'll throw yeah. into your wallet that has nothing to do He's, with the ad he has a little adding machine and, yeah. a, and a and a little pork pie hat <laughs> i talk about movies and television what do you need to make movies and television actors oh i was well, gonna you, say cameras no well yes but actors existed before movies and television they also existed in this thing called theater. Uh, so today's story will be centered around that, and it is called The Man Who Shot the Man Who Shot Lincoln. Part one, the Lincoln president? Do you guys remember the Lincoln lawyer that came out like six years ago, maybe? It was a uh... reference to everyone's favorite Matthew McConaughey movie, The Lincoln Lawyer, where he's a lawyer that works out of his Lincoln. Oh, yeah, and he fights vampires. And he fights vampires. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was born February 12th, 1809, the second child of Thomas and Nancy Hanks Lincoln in a one-room log cabin in Sinking Spring Farm, Hogdenville, Kentucky. Uh, he was a vampire hunter by trade, or we know. <laughs> he became a Whig Party leader after uh, basically teaching himself how to become a lawyer in Illinois, and he was elected in the Illinois House of Representatives and served for eight years. He was then elected to the State House of Representatives in 1846. He was opposed to the Mexican-American War, which was unpopular amongst Illinois' voters, but he... Oh, the people who loved the Sufjan Stevens album? Weird. That's strange, right? I didn't know he was around back then. Um, yeah, him and Lincoln used to get lunch at the Bean every day. <laughs> so he quit politics for a while after that. He then returned, and after the publicized debates with his opponent and rival, Democrat Stephen A. Douglas... Lincoln spoke out against the expansion of slavery. He lost the Senate race to Douglas, but secured a Republican Party nomination in 1860 and would become 
president. I totally forgot to write down the number. I want to say 17th, but I think I'm wrong. Part two, Booth Babe. Oh, John Wilkes Booth was born in Maryland in 1838. Booth's parents were noted British Shakespearean actor Junius Brutus Booth and his mistress, Mary Ann Holmes. They moved from the U.S. from England to the U.S. in 1821. They purchased an estate in Bel Air, Maryland, where Wilkes Booth was born in a four-room log cabin, three rooms more than Lincoln, and he was the ninth of ten children. Most of them were actors. I want some Booth logs. Yeah, it's the, they was actually part of the Booth theatrical family. They were Shakespearean actors, and a couple of them actually founded the Players, which is a Shakespeare company still working in New York today. So Booth is going to kind of be the center of our story for a bit because he was actually the first heartthrob. Uh, John Wilkes Booth was certified hot. Bangable A10-100. John Wilkes Booth, more like John Wet Booth. Exactly. Because all the booths would be wet after his shows. Yeah. Because he'd spray the audience with his fun party hose. That yeah. sounded so much dirtier than I intended it to. I call that Tom's disease. <laughs> uh, he made a stage debut at age 17 on August 14th, 1855, in a supporting role of Earl of Richmond in Richard III at the Baltimore's, Baltimore's Charles Street Theater. The audience jeered at him. He was an inexperienced actor and he missed most of his lines. Booth developed into an outrageous scene stealer, but he played his parts with such heightened enthusiasm that the audiences idolized him. So even though he sucked, he just worked really hard and became a huge sensation. In February 1858, he played in Lucretia Borgia at the Art Street Theater, and on opening night, he experienced stage fright and stumbled over his lines. Instead of introducing himself by saying, Madam, I am Petruccio Pandolfo, he stammered, Madam, I am Pandolfo Pet, Pandolfio Pat, Pancio Pet, damn it, who am I? Which caused the audience to roar with laughter. Liam, I didn't hear any difference between those two. I know, I couldn't figure out the, sp- the saying of it. Later you wrote it. No, I. You didn't have to put that part in. I just like that he got a, He got a laugh by going, "Who am I on stage?" It shows. So, do, so does John Valjean every night. <laughs> it was Horatio and Hamlet, alongside his older brother Edwin, and after one of their first performances in ha- in Hamlet, Edwin led his younger brother out to the footlights and said to the audiences, "I think he's done well, don't you?" And the audience loudly all cried, "Yes, yes." Everybody, Sorry, so imagine. everybody's just like horny for JWB. They're super horny for him. When you said that, my immediate thought was like the Tim and Eric Crimbus special, where they are all like, mm. <laughs> then they all clap at the same time. It's, I mean, that's basically what was happening. Uh, he performed in eighty-three plays that year. He said that his favorite role to play was that of Brutus, the slayer of a tyrant. Part three. More than a f- Thomas Corbett was born in 1832 in London, and he immigrated with his family to New York City in 1839. Eventually, they settled in Troy, New York, and as a young man, Corbett worked as a hatter. Do you guys know about the the how the hatter industry was in the 1800s? Uh, they put bad chemicals on them, and you went crazy. It was filled with mercury to treat all the furs, and mercury poisons your brain and makes you fucking crazy. As a hatter, Corbett was regularly exposed to fumes of mercury nitrate, and he would get twitches and psychosis, hallucinations, all known as just hatter shakes. So people were like, oh, he's just having the shakes, he's fine, while he's like spinning around crazy in the corner. As we're working as a hatter, he meets a woman, they fall in love, they get married, they're about to have a child, and she and the child die during childbirth. Corbett becomes completely despondent, and he moves to Boston and decides to just drink himself to death. 
as uh, you do in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, basically, as someone who he grew becomes, up near there. He becomes homeless, couldn't find a job, and after one night of having dr- heavy drinking, he's confronted by a street preacher whose message persuaded him to join the Methodist Episcopal Church. Corbett saw the light almost immediately, quit drinking, and changed his name to Boston after the city he was converted in. Gotta find a name, gotta find a name. Gotta find a name, gotta find a name. So he kept working as a hat manufacturer in Boston. He was a proficient hatter, but he was also known to loudly pray and preach uh, during work and sing, and he would blasphemize his co-workers that used profanity, and he's generally not the coolest person to be around. He earned a local reputation for being the religious eccentric around Boston. On July 16th, 1858, Corbett was propositioned by two prostitutes while walking home from a church meeting and he was deeply disturbed by this encounter. He did not like the way it made him as a man feel. And he began reading chapters 18 and 19, Gospel of Matthew, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Yo, is this motherfucker about to stab his own eyeball? Tom, don't be ridiculous. In order to avoid sexual temptation and remain holy, he took a pair of scissors, and he chopped off his testicles. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, no, 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 he didn't. No, he didn't. He, he didn't did. Do oh, that. he did, Tom. Surely see, he didn't. Oh, you see, Tom, the rest of the quote from the gospel was, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. After he cut his balls off, he had dinner and then went to church. And then the next day went to the hospital because it was still a little sore down there. Wait, like, okay, okay, here. So. Uh, yes, what's up? What's up, Tom? Is an incredibly delicate procedure Hmm? To remove to genitalia, or to I don't know, get up in them meats. So I'm just, how did he not? Did he? How did he? I don't bleed understand out? your confusion. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you take like? Oh God! He I'm stuck just a rat down there. The pain that because he's and that's the thing. He's not drinking Tom. anymore, so Tom. he's not like self anesthetizing. So maybe he just like went like. Oh, why would you fucking like? Oh. He found God. I don't know if I mentioned that before. <laughs> I I still think that um, it was a pretty big risk, uh, but you know it ended up being one of the more interesting movies of the Disney Renaissance, despite sort of the more serious subject matter. He joined the Union it's Army. The, it's the Hunchback of Notre Dame was the joke. Oh, There's mean... a horny priest in that movie. Oh, Leo. there is, oh. isn't it? Frollo. He sings the best song. He's v horny. He's so horny in that movie. He joined the Union Army during the Civil War, but his religious beliefs got him into a lot of trouble. He was court-martialed, he was supposed to be shot, they decided not to shoot him, and just kicked him out of uh, his first regiment, and then he just re-enlisted in a different regiment, the 16th New York Cavalry Regiment. This guy, this guy is clearly unstable, has, has been poisoned in the brain. Let's throw him in the army, give him a gun! Part four. And it all comes together. He's chopped off his own testicles for basically no reason. He couldn't possibly be a danger to anybody. Booth was strongly opposed to the abolitionists who sought to end the slavery in the U.S. And although Booth toured as an actor in both the North and the South, he would publicly talk about how much he fucking hated Lincoln. As the war went on and the Confederacy was losing, Booth was angry that he had promised his mother he would not enlist, and he felt like he was letting the Confederacy down. 
Booth was arguing so much with his older brother and, and other family members who were mostly pro-union that they told him they were he was no longer welcome home anymore. That's good. Booth had a sister named Asia, and he once ranted at her about Lincoln. That man's appearance, his pedigree, his coarse low jokes and antidotes, his vulgar smile, and his policy are a disgrace to the seat he holds. He has made the tool of the North to crush out slavery. On the morning of Good Friday, April 14th, 1865, Booth went to Ford's Theater to get his mail. He was a regular at Ford's Theater and was well-beloved, so he was basically just allowed to wander around and do pretty much whatever he wanted. It's like if, like, Chris Gethard showed up to UCB Chelsea. To assassinate Bill Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's literally, yeah. He learned that Lincoln, Mary Todd, and General Mrs. Ulysses S. Grant were going to go see our American cousin that night at Ford's Theater. And he immediately thought of a plan to assassinate him. He had actually tried to think of other couple of plans to kidnap him before, and once even attended a rally... Uh, uh, of Lincoln's in like a way to like do recon or something but never really made anything of it so Booth waited and he waited and he waited and he bore a little spy hole and he watched and right at this one joke he goes up behind Lincoln (laughs) sorry I'm just imagining he's waiting and waiting and he bores the hole (laughs) and it's the women's dressing room (laughs) and he's just like ooga ooga he moves the ladder over to the other part of the frat house yeah (laughs) why don't they make this a college comedy movie it it sounds like it it might as well be so Booth slipped into Lincoln's box that evening around 10 p.m. Nice. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and he shot Lincoln in the back of the head with a .41 caliber Derringer. <laughs> Booth's escape was almost thwarted by Major Henry Rathbone, who was present in the presidential <laughs> box. Nice. Thank you again. But Booth stabbed Rathbone when the startled officer lunged at him. Booth then jumped from the president's box to the stage where he raised his knife and shouted, Six Semper Tyrannus! And shouted, Nice! <laughs> and shouted, I slipped into Lincoln's box! Yeah, and the crowd went, Yes, yes! yes. Clap. Clap! Booth fled by a stage door to the alley where his gateway... Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> when he screamed Six Semper Tyrannus, it's Latin for thus always to tyrants, which is what Brutus says at Caesar's assassination because John Wilkes Booth is a pretentious asshole. <laughs> Booth fled by a stage door to the alley where his getaway horse was held for him by my favorite name we've ever encountered, Joseph Peanuts Burroughs. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the John Belushi character, right? <laughs> Joseph Peanuts Burroughs was an average attorney until his estranged daughter comes back. Eventually, uh, uh, Booth and his two companions uh, made it to a tobacco farm owned by a man named Richard Garrett. So on April 24th, 1865, Corbett's regiment was sent to apprehend John Wilkes Booth. April 26th, the regiment, regiment surrounded Booth and David Harold, one of his accomplices, in the barn. Harold surrendered, but Booth refused, so they set the barn on fire in an attempt to force him out into the open, but Booth stayed inside. So Corbett was positioned near a large crack in the barn wall. In an 1878 interview, Corbett claimed that he saw Booth aim his carbine, prompting him to shoot Booth with his Colt revolver despite Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton's orders that Booth be brought in alive. Lieutenant Edward P. Doherty, the officer in charge of the soldiers who captured Booth and Harold, stated that the bullet struck Booth in the back of the head, about an inch below the spot where a shot had entered the head of Mr. Lincoln. Booth's spinal cord was severed, and he died two hours later. So, Corbett, 
the man who thought, just cut off my balls so I don't have to, like, feel anything, is also the man who took a, like, once-in-a-lifetime shot and nailed Booth right in the back of the head. Nice. This might be a, a tough question to answer, but did he throw away his shot? No. He had one shot. One opportunity. If I knew the rest of 8 Mile, man. Well, I was, no, I I'm not we throwing away Hamilton. my shot. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah, Hamilton. You yeah. fucked everything you up, idiot. guys. You idiot, you're, you're close to the time period. <laughs> Closer than Eminem was. Yeah. Except for my experimental historical fanfiction series where Eminem writes all of history's wrongs. Part 5. Mad as a Hatter. Uh, when asked why he had violated orders, Corbett replied, Providence directed me, so God told him to do it. Mm. He was immediately arrested, and Doherty took him to the War Department in Washington, D.C. to be court-martialed. Uh, when he was questioned about Booth's capture and shooting, uh, Doherty and Corbett agreed that Corbett had in fact disobeyed orders not to shoot, but Corbett maintained that he believed Booth had intended to shoot his way out of the barn, and then he acted in self-defense. He stated, Booth would have killed me if I had not shot first. I think I did right. Stanton paused and then stated, The rebel is dead. The patriot lives. He is spared to the country expense. Continued excitement and trouble. Discharge the patriot. Upon leaving the war department, Corbett was greeted by a cheering crowd. And Corbett told the crowd, I aimed at his body. I did not want to kill him. I think he stopped. I think he stooped to pick up something just as I fired. That may probably account for his receiving the ball in the head. When the assassin lay at my feet, a wounded man, I saw the bullet had taken effect about an inch back of the ear, and I remembered that Mr. Lincoln was wounded about the same part of the head. I said, what a God we have. God avenged Abraham Lincoln. And Bob Kane. And Bob Kane. <laughs> While there was some criticism of Corb uh, Corbett's actions, he was largely considered a hero by the public and the press. One newspaper editor declared that Corbett would live as one of the world's great avengers. <laughs> so Stan Lee would have later tried... <laughs> it's this guy, Bob or, uh, uh, Corbett, and he's uh, he's gonna shoot John Wilkes Booth. It's gonna be incredible, and he's got no balls. <laughs> Come off, Jack. Get me, get me a picture. And Jack comes back, and he's wearing like a huge sci-fi armor, and it's all about the the <laughs> concepts of good and evil. And the Silver Surfer's there. Yeah, Corbett went back to hat making after the war, traveled the east Co east coast, just preaching and hatting. And he became super paranoid that people in Washington were out to get him because they couldn't question Booth because he shot him. Uh, as his paranoia increased, he was fearful that Booth's Avengers or Secret Order were going to send him death threats. And some people from the South did actually start sending him death threats. He would brandish pistols at friends or strangers he deemed suspicious. He attended a soldier's reunion of the Blue and Gray in Caldwell, Ohio, Ohio in 1875. And he got into an argument. One of the men questioned if Corbett had actually killed Booth, and Corbett, in a rage, drew his pistol at the man, man but he was removed before he could fire it. And then in 1878, he moved to Kansas. He acquired a plot of land and started building his home, and he continued to work as a preacher and attended revival meetings frequently. Uh, due to his fame as Lincoln's Avengers, Corbett was appointed assistant doorkeeper of the Kansas House of Representatives in Topeka in January 1887. Less than a month later, he became convinced that the office at the house were discriminated against him. He jumped to his feet, brandished a revolver, and began chasing all the officers out of the building. No one was hurt, and Corbett was arrested. He was declared insane the next day and sent to the Topeka Asylum for the Insane. He escaped on horseback four months later, and he rode out to Kansas, where he briefly stayed with Richard Thatcher, a man he met well, they were prisoners of war. God, Red Dead Redemption 2 sounds great. Doesn't it? 
he was said he said he was going to go to Mexico, but no one actually quite knows what happened to him. There was a a story that he not sorry. Uh, it was also said that he might have moved to Pine County in eastern Minnesota. There was a fire near Hinckley where he would have been living, the Great Hinckley Fire of 1894. A and Thomas Corbett is on the name uh, is on the list of names of the dead and the missing. Many people after his death would try to impersonate him to, to sort of get his claim to fame, but they were all found out to be insane imposters. And then in 1958, the Boy Scout Troop 31 of Concordia, Kansas, built a roadside monument to Corbett on Key Road, and a small sign was also placed to mark the Doug Hole where Corbett had lived for a time, which isn't even the weirdest thing that the Boy Scouts have ever done. And so ends the story of the feud between... Booth, Lincoln, and a dude who cut his own balls off. Who would have guessed it would have ended just like Logan? I want to do a shout out to the book Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer by James Swanson, which is one of my favorite like history books about uh, the Ocean's Eleven style plot to kill Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very good. Word. Uh, yeah, so that's my story. Hell yeah. Tom, what do we do next on this podcast? Typically, next what we do, because sometimes we talk about some rough-a-duff-a-tough-a-stuff -a -a on this here podcast, and we like to balance that out with, you know, something nice that happened our, in our lives in a little segment we like to call the Self-Care Corner. Ooh, I'm, I'm getting real comfortable here. I think it's traditional for a guest to go first. So, Seth, if something nice has happened to you in your life recently... Lay it out there and just feel refreshed by it. I'd like to talk about a comic that has fundamentally changed my life. Um, that's really reminded me why I read comics and uh, sort of shown me that there can still be joy in this world. And the comic I'd like to talk about is uh, Batman Elmer Fudd by oh, uh, Tom King yeah. and Lee Weeks, which is a gritty noir sin city batman frank miller ass comic about elmer fudd uh a hitman trying to take out bruce wayne yeah the the it is a beautiful comic it's drawn in in a style that is very reminiscent of frank miller or you know the sort of noirish batman comics um it's it's made up of a gotham that includes anthropomorphized uh animals uh, Looney Tunes character. Oh, so fucking uh, it starts. All the captions include uh, Elmer's speech impediment. The title of the story is called Poi for Me. I love it. Tom, would you like to go? Sure. I received a message from a very, very old friend of mine who worked at the sleepaway camp that Liam and I met at. Wow. Mm -hmm. Just like Wet Hot American yeah. Summer. Basically. Like, literally, I, I haven't talked to this guy in. It's been five or six years now and yeah it's been f it's been five years and he just ch chatted me up out of the blue and we had a really great conversation and he was like oh send me some of your music send me some of your writing and he does music he's in a he's in a band i was listening to his new album today yeah you know what everybody go listen to uh fuera de foco by lalo and vivo He's a really nice Ooh. guy and a good friend, and it's always nice to hear from somebody that you, you haven't talked to in a while. That's awesome. Hey, Tom, what is that? Did the mouse just drop a check <laughs> into your pocket? What? What is that? No, no absolutely not. 
No, if you'll excuse me, Try I have to go to check my online behind the banking. capitalist curtain. <laughs> Um, my self care corner is uh, a couple months ago. If you all, if if you guys remember, I was talking about shooting a music video for my good friend Donovan, uh, aka Mr. Daywalker. He's the the producer of the Shmanime theme song for you Shmanime fans out there. Uh, he's also been on that podcast. Well, we re- uh, the video has dropped, so it's on YouTube. Google porcelain, uh, YouTube porcelain by Mr. Daywalker, and you can see the video that I helped directed and edit and also star in as Boy One. Wow! Yeah, it's a whole bunch of fun. Great costume. That's all my sister. My sister did all the costumes. She killed it. That's she did my all fa- the creature effects. It's my favorite phrase. Boy One <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> okay. Seth, do you have anything to plug? This will be coming out... On the 24th. Oh, uh, tomorrow night at the Pit Loft, my independent improv team, Serpentine, is having our one-year anniversary show. Wow, can you believe it? An improv team stayed together for more than a month. That's incredible. After their their required time together was out. Is that Um, at the Striker or the Loft? That is at the Loft, of course. I like the Loft. Um, yeah, I would. I just did a show at the Striker where the air conditioning was broken. Oh, fun! This is all. This is in New York City's the no. People's Improv Theater. So yes. if you're in the area, come out and see Serpentine. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter at SuperSeth64, <laughs> and then you can go to my website, which is SethFKL.com. Tom, you got anything new to plug? We've got all our plug stuff on the website. Yeah, I think it's good. Check us out on Twitter at MediaMajorsCast. Oh. Do we have a new? Did did I think we might have forgotten to add a to uh, shout out a new follower? No fucking idea, dude. How about you shout out your latest follower? Well, our latest follower is at Super Seth sixty four Seth Finkelstein. Oh, I, just I love to, your I love your description. I just want to um sort of say to all the aspiring podcast guests out there, that's how you get a double plug. <laughs> And then uh, also, Tom, we've not only have been followed by Spun On Me, which is super awesome of them to follow us after allowing our ad to be on their wonderful program. Yep. Uh, we've also been followed by at Stubby Stan. I am your Huckleberry. Uh, yeah, he's one of their at, hosts. One of their hosts. And yep. at Poorly Summarized, a podcast covering highlights from social media. Uh, news, politics, Trump jokes, and stupid shit my friend, uh, friends post. And it's host by... At only true Justin and at probably for sale. So check their podcast out. Yep. They gave us a follow. Email us at mediamajorspodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. I know iTunes is fucking terrible about reviews and stuff, but you know, just leave us a sentence. And yeah, as always, we'll be there for you. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.